uh, please go ahead and join me as we uh, pray for the sermon today. Lord, we are uh, just each thankful for another day of life that you've given us, and uh, we're thankful for this uh, place that you have uh, provided for us to come together and uh, uh, worship you and celebrate you, Lord. And as uh, Mike prepares to, to walk up here today, uh, we just uh, we pray for uh, the sermon that you've uh, prepared for him to deliver, and anything that he may or may, may be wrestling with today, Lord, we just pray that you free him of that while he comes to be a faithful steward of what you've called him to do. And for the word that is delivered today, Lord, I pray that each one of us has uh, open ears for what it is that you have for us to receive today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. It's a joy to be able to open the Word of God together. Would you please grab your Bibles and turn to Matthew, uh, not Matthew, Mark. We will spend some time in Matthew, but Mark chapter 7. We have a short passage today, verses 24 through 30. Mark chapter 7, verses 24 through 30. Today is week 18 in the Gospel according to Mark. Mark chapter 7, 24 through 30. When you get there, if you're able, I invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word today. I invite you to read out loud along with me. At the end of that reading, I'll say that this is the Word of the Lord. I invite you to respond in true praise by saying thanks be to God. Amen. It is His Word, a gift to us today. Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 24, reading through verse 30. Let's begin. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. As I said, we're in our 18th week of the gospel according to Mark. We're going to carry on here in Mark until the Advent season, which begins the last Sunday of November. And by that time, we will end up uh, just at the very end of Mark chapter 9, so that after that holiday season, we'll pick up again in Mark chapter 10, verse 1. At least that is the plan. We'll see how that goes. Over the last two weeks, jumping back into the gospel according to Mark, we have uh, dealt with a couple of passages that it has been my distinct privilege to go through as if it were not for going through the gospel according to Mark, one chapter and verse at a time, I never probably would have preached them. And I can say the same thing about this passage. 
uh, here in uh, next year, actually no, this year marks 20 years of full-time ministry for me. And in 20 years of full-time ministry, I can honestly say that I don't think that I have preached on Mark chapter 7 at all. Uh, Maybe the last passage that heals a deaf man, I may have uh, preached on this. I cannot remember exactly. Um, I've preached on many of Jesus' miracles, but I have not dealt with the Syrophoenician woman. And I've not dealt explicitly with the uh, passages that we read over the last two weeks. Let me tell you why. They're difficult. Doggone it. They're difficult passages. And if it was left up to me, as many of the last 20 years have been left up to me in a certain sense, I avoided them. May God have mercy on my soul. I avoided them uh, because they are difficult, because there are things in there that are difficult. And the last two weeks have been difficult dealing with essentially the total depravity of man. That's not anything uh, that any preacher wakes up on the Lord's day and is excited necessarily to talk about. And I'll just go out on a limb and say, maybe if a preacher is that excited to talk about the total depravity of man, there might be a problem. Not saying explicitly so. I'm not saying definitively so. That's not a thus saith the Lord. It's just if you're really that excited to talk about the total depravity of man, like it just revs you up. Um, I mean, maybe. Think about it. I'm not saying it's a red flag. might be a yellow flag, okay? Hasn't been the most exciting thing. And now jumping into now talking about this Syrophoenician woman. It's an amazing, beautiful passage of scripture. But why might I not want to go here? Well, because Jesus calls this woman a dog. It's not the most palatable thing to think about. Certainly, if I know that my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ was perfect and sinless, that he did not err in what he thought or what he did or what he said, then I have to know that whatever uh, offense that I take in reading this passage, it is not what was intended by the Lord. And yet, I'll just be honest, like, I kind of take an offense. There's something there that rubs me the wrong way, that kind of gets at me a little bit. And yet, by God's sovereignty here, we find ourselves today in Mark chapter 7, 24 through 30. And so we're going to deal with this today. Am I going to be able to unpack why Jesus calling this woman a dog is not offensive? Not really. To be quite honest, I'm not really going to deal with it that much. But I have had to comfort myself this week in knowing beyond my offense that Jesus is good. And so I will comfort you simply with that and we'll see how the rest of the day goes. Jesus is good. Over the last two weeks, we've dealt, as I said, with the conflict between Jesus and the scribes and Pharisees over cleanliness and what uh, constitutes true defilement. 
And we pick up the narrative and find Jesus seeking shelter from the rising conflict, not as a coward, mind you, but rather in wisdom, as Matthew's gospel puts it, withdrawing for a time. And if you read through the gospels, you'll see that from time to time in the three-year span that made up Jesus' earthly ministry, you'll find that he does that from time to time. He will withdraw from the crowds. A crowd will kind of come together and and tensions will begin to build and it kind of comes almost to a breaking point and right at sort of the uh, pinnacle of that uh, rising conflict, Jesus will withdraw. In some cases, they're, they're seeking to take him and kill him. And somehow, by God's divine providence, he slips through the crowd and kind of fades into the horizon, so to speak. And he withdraws. And what happens? The, the conflict sort of begins to calm down. If you've ever uh, spent time in the kitchen, you, you kind of can see this played out when you're boiling something, right? And, and if you uh, take the lid off or put the lid on, you kind of see the difference in that boiling over effect. And, and so uh, there's this sense in which as that rising conflict kind of begins to a point where it seems like it's going to boil over, Jesus withdraws. And here we see him withdraw for a time. We see here in this event the mystery of the hypostatic union, where Jesus in his human nature is likely responding to weariness, whether of the body or of the mind, the will or emotions. And yet he is, as he always did, going exactly and precisely where the Father by the Spirit is directing him and saying precisely and exactly what the Father has told him to say. In this case, even referring in some roundabout way to this woman as a dog. In this interaction with the Syrophoenician woman, we see the foreshadowing of the dawning of the light of the glory of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ on the Gentiles. You see, sin and redemption was never only a Jewish issue. It was a human issue. Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. In Adam, all sinned. And so sin and its problem and redemption and its answer are not a Jewish issue. It's a human issue. And here we get to see how Christ's redemption is beginning to spill over from the Jews into the Gentiles. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that wasn't just about God's chosen people and the Israelites. It was about all men. It's an all without exception, not an all without distinction. But it was through the Jews that God saw fit to reveal his character and nature to mankind through the giving and receiving of the law and his mercy and grace through this rebellious and stiff-necked people who, though God disciplined them as a loving father should, throughout the Old Testament narrative, what do we see? We see a God who consistently redeemed his people from the full measure of their rebellion and brought them back into a state of mercy and grace 
when they would humble themselves and pray and seek his face and turn from their wicked ways. And that's not played out only in the Old Testament scriptures. It was played out in space and time and history for all the surrounding nations to see. Because they would see that when these people who called themselves by the name of Jehovah were obedient to him, whirlwinds and fire, seas parted, armies were confused, weather patterns changed, and they would walk away from some of these things completely unscathed. And yet, when they sinned against the Lord their God, what happened? The smallest skirmishes seemed to carry the greatest weight. You can see that dichotomy between the battle of Jericho and the battle of Ai under Joshua's command. And so this played out in front of all the nations, the surrounding nations to see. But what we see in Scripture is that the gospel had to go to and come through the Jews first, but then also spread outward to the Gentiles. Who were the Gentiles? The Gentiles was everyone who was not a Jew. So we must remember the promise that God made to Abraham. Who was Abraham? Abraham was the father of the Hebrew people. Adam was the father of all men, but Abraham was the father of God's people. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's all sing along. Right arm, left. Okay, sorry. What was the promise that God made to Abraham? The promise that God made to Abraham was that through him... God was going to do something. What? What was he going to do? He was going to bless all the peoples of the earth, all nations, all ethnos. That through Abraham, God was going to bless all the peoples of the earth, all the nations of the earth. You see, God's chosen people were to be set apart and holy as an example Not necessarily of holy living, but of God's mercy and grace. And a vessel through whom he was going to bring the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. And so here we see Jesus moving. He goes to the region of Tyre and Sidon. He's moving from the Sea of Galilee in the confines of the boundaries of the ancient nation of Israel and moving outside of those boundaries now to the coast, to the region of Tyre and Sidon, a famous seaport area, particularly made famous by the conquest of Alexander the Great during the intertestamental period. It is located on the Mediterranean coastline and it is predominantly populated by Gentiles. Most notably, as it relates to Jesus and for the context of our text today, it is, as I said, an area outside the boundaries of ancient Israel. Why is that important? Because with the exception of the time that Mary and Joseph flee to Egypt with Jesus as a young child, this is the only other time that we see Jesus leave the nation of Israel proper. 
And interestingly, he goes to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Well, who cares? Why does that matter? What's so special about Tyre and Sidon? Interestingly, the region of Tyre and Sidon is the place where a small area or community called Zarephath is located. Where have we heard that name before? Zarephath. You have to think about it. You have to go back to Sunday school. Think about the Old Testament. Think about Elijah. And Zarephath was the place, that famous place, where during the time of famine, Elijah went and was cared for, specifically was fed bread by the widow woman and her child, and where God performed the miracle of not letting the flour and oil for bread run out for the whole duration of the famine. Do you remember that? And then ultimately something happens. What happens? Elijah comes, the widow is there. He asks her if she has any bread. She says, look, you know there's a famine going on, right? Here we are, we're gathering enough grain to go home. We have just enough flour and oil. We're going to make some cakes for me and my son so that we can eat and we can die. Essentially what she says. And Elijah says, hang on a minute. I hear what you're saying, but uh, make me a cake first. <laughs> There's a lot of just interesting stuff going on today, isn't there? Jesus calling this woman a dog. Elijah's telling this woman to bake him a cake first. What's going on? And what happens? She does. She makes him a cake first. And something happens, even though she only had enough for her and her son to make a cake and die, God extends the oil and the flour. Not just for that day, not just so there's enough for Elijah, but for the duration of the rest of the famine. That flour and that oil never runs out. Now, some liberal scholars have said that Elijah had a cave nearby where he had stashed away flour and oil and was coming back and refilling it just so this woman could experience the goodness of God. That is a big bunch of baloney. It's about the nicest way I can put it. God worked a miracle. And not only that, that that's just the beginning. As this happens, something happens to this widow's son and he dies. Now she's beside herself. What good is oil and flour to make cakes if I don't have my son to share it with? But God works another miracle through His servant Elijah. And ultimately, God will raise that widow woman's son from the dead. Now that's cool. That happened in the Old Testament Scriptures. It's an amazing story. And yet it came to mark something very specific in Jesus' ministry. If you look in Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 16, give you a little bit of time to turn there if you want. 
we have Luke's relation of something we've seen already, but he goes into a little more detail. Beginning in verse 16, Luke chapter 4, it says, And he, he being Jesus, came to Nazareth. Where's Nazareth? Nazareth is where Jesus grew up, right? He's coming. It's a homecoming. I think there were some homecoming weekends this weekend. It's a homecoming. Jesus has a homecoming where he's been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him and began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I mean, imagine being there for a moment. All your life, you have been waiting for the one for whom Isaiah prophesied this about. The anointed one. That's what Christ means. Let's not forget, I usually remind you of this around Christmas time. We're getting close. I'll remind you again, Christ was not Jesus' surname. It wasn't his last name. He was Jesus bar Joseph, the son of Joseph, or the son of Mary, depending on who you asked, as we'll see in a moment. But Christ meant the anointed one of God, the Messiah. Surely these people are going to stand up and applaud and rejoice and celebrate and blow trumpets. Let's see what happens. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless, you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown, but in truth. Now, here we go. Listen to this. In truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Now in the context of our own gospel narrative in Mark, Jesus has already been rejected by the Jews in Galilee. And so where does he go? After that rejection, and not just once, but multiple times as we've seen, he goes to the same area mentioned by him, here in reference to God blessing some Gentiles in the Old Testament when his own people were in the midst of rebelling against him by rejecting his word. Now, Jesus is the incarnate word of God. 
And as he could not be hidden in this text, he will not be hidden and rejected forever. And wrath is coming for all who reject him finally. Turn a few pages from Luke 4 to Luke 10. And we'll see this area that Jesus is in right now in Mark 7. Reference again, Luke 10, verse 13 through 16. Jesus is speaking now. He says, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! These are places in Israel. He says, For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me. The one who rejects you rejects me. The one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. If we reject Jesus, we don't just reject a man. We reject the one who sent him, God, the father and maker of all things. Talk about the need to serve God with a quiet mind. If we reject Jesus, we reject the one who sent him, God, the father and maker of all things. And what has we seen happen in Israel? Jesus keeps getting the stiff arm from those who were supposed to be there to shepherd the people to him. And instead, they're trying to destroy him, even conspiring with the Herodians to kill him. And so Jesus does what? He withdraws and he enters a house in this Gentile area. We don't know whose house. But it says that he didn't want anyone to know. Now, if you look back at Mark 6, 31, we've seen this kind of thing happen already. Remember Mark 6, 31, Jesus spoke to his disciples and he said what? He said, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. But if we remember all the way back before the summertime, what happened when they went away to a desolate place? by themselves with Jesus to rest. Did they get any rest? No, they didn't get any rest. They haven't got any rest. And so here, again, we see Jesus drawing them away. They haven't rested, and presumably, Jesus is still trying to get away from the crowds. But just like when he pulled his disciples away then, he has a further purpose now in Mark 7. To meet this woman and to heal many, to let the crumbs from the children spill from the table and feed the little dogs. And by all accounts, he should have been safely concealed here. Josephus spoke of the Tyrians as, quote, our bitterest enemies. And so Jesus is withdrawing, not just outside the boundaries of Israel, not just to some obscure place, but into a place that is markedly a hostile area to the Jews. I mean, you would think if all the places he could kind of get away and hide for a minute, it would be here. Now, it wasn't always the case that this place were their bitterest enemies. If you remember, the king of Tyre helped David out 
with supplies for the temple. But over time, that relationship with the Hebrew people had changed. But Jesus is there, and can he remain hidden? No, he cannot. Hear me. Ultimately, Jesus will not and cannot remain hidden. He will not and cannot remain hidden in our own lives. And you ought not to think that he could or that you should try to hide Jesus in your own life. Remember that song, This Little Light of Mine. I'm going to let it shine, right? And that other verse that we used to sing, hide it under a bushel? No, I'm going to let it shine. And yet, how often do we fall prey to the trap that the enemy would try to set for us, that we could somehow live our lives for Jesus on Sunday morning and maybe on Tuesday or Wednesday night, but hide the light of Christ from the rest of people in our lives. Jesus will not and cannot remain hidden in our own lives, in the church, ultimately in the world. He may remain shrouded in darkness for a time, except for those for whom the veil has been removed. But a day is coming, prophesied about by Isaiah, and then reminded to the church by the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2, When he says what? When he says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And so here in this moment, though Jesus perhaps in his human nature is seeking to remain hidden, yet he cannot remain hidden. And Mark is able through this instance to yet again draw that question that he keeps bringing up for us rhetorically in the text. Remember the question of Mark. What is the question of Mark? Who is this Jesus? This is the question of Mark's gospel. Remember that Mark chapter 8 marks the center point of Mark's gospel. And the, cl- the first climax of Mark's gospel is what? When Peter himself will, by the Father's revelation, declare Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of the living God. But it's here, in Mark chapter 7, that this Syrophoenician woman seems to answer that question before anyone else. While Jesus' presence was not hidden, His identity seems to be seems to be hidden to everybody, that is, except for this Syrophoenician woman. How do I know? Look at verse 28. What does she say? Even after Jesus refers to her basically as a dog, what does she say? Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. And the parallel account in Matthew 15, now you could look at that and you could say, well, he was a man, he was a Jewish man, she wanted something from him, perhaps it was merely a kind of acquiescence to his perceived status in society. And yet if we look at the parallel account in Matthew 15, we find 
that she calls him Lord three times. Three times. Why does Matthew record that and not Mark? Well, Matthew was writing to a Jewish audience, whereas Mark is writing for the Romans in Rome, for Gentiles. But what's the significance of a three-time repetition for the Jews? It represents truth, and it represents raising something to the degree of importance. In their writing, they didn't have exclamation points. They didn't like bold things and underline it three times like we might try to do to say, hey, pay attention to this. Instead, they used repetition. You may remember the extra superlative that is used in the book of Isaiah chapter 6 when the seraphim in the presence of God utter the extra superlative describing God's character and nature as what? Not just holy, not just holy, holy, but holy, holy, holy. The only part of God's character that is raised to that extra superlative degree in all of Scripture to say this is important. And Matthew, in writing to the Jews, carefully lays out three times that this Syrophoenician woman calls Jesus Lord. Coincidence? I don't know, but that seems significant to me. And we see here, verse 25, what happens? Jesus is trying to hide away, Mark seven twenty-five, and Mark gets to use his favorite word again, which is what? Immediately. And so, again, we have this pace that is moving here. Jesus gets away. He finds this house. He seeks to conceal himself there. And yet, immediately here, we find this woman. And here she comes, and she is seeking something from the hand of the Lord. But is she seeking it for herself? No, she is coming as a mother. Because she has a daughter who has an unclean spirit. Her plight is desperate. But what does it say? It says, Immediately, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit, what? Heard of him. She heard of him. How will anyone hear unless someone is sent? How beautiful are the feet of those who proclaim the good news. Somewhere along the line, she heard of Jesus. Now, we are going to move from this section into the next section next week. But if you look there in verse 31, it says that Jesus moves to the region of Decapolis. And then the the Decapolis, where have we heard that name before? Decapolis was the home of the demoniac from Mark chapter 5. Mark 5, 19, the demoniac is wanting to go and follow Jesus. Jesus says, no, he doesn't let him. Instead, he says, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Now, the Decapolis was not immediately adjacent 
the region of Sire, of, of uh, Tyre and Sidon. But the Decapolis was also known, as this region was, as a region that was filled with Gentiles. And Tyre and Sidon are port cities for the Gentiles. What do we know about port cities and inland cities? That's where the goods come from. And here we have this trade route that's established between the port cities of Tyre and Sidon and the Decapolis Gentile cities that are inland. Could she have heard about Jesus from the demoniac? Even in some roundabout way? We don't know. But it's possible. Regardless, she heard about him. She heard about Jesus. And so verse 26, what does she do? She begs him. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him, she begged Jesus to cast the demon out of her daughter. Now I think at this point it behooves us to move to Matthew 15 and read the parallel account. You can turn there if you'd like, Matthew 15, 21 through 28, because I think we get to see some things there that may be important for our understanding. We're not going to always read the whole parallel account for all of these things, but here I think it's helpful. Mark 15, beginning in verse 21. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. And there we see that not only has she heard about him, but she says something very specific about him, doesn't she? Son of David. What is that? That's a designation of the Messiah, of the Christ, the one who would be called the Son of David, who would rule on the throne of David eternally, without end. Here, this Syrophoenician woman is in some sense making a confession of faith. But verse 23, though she implores him what? He did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, send her away, for she's crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now remember, This is the only time that we see Jesus leaving the ancient borders of Israel. And even when Jesus sends out the disciples to go and declare the good news of the gospel ahead of him, he tells them to specifically only go to the house of Israel and not to the Gentile cities. And so we see something here about Jesus' mission. Where was Jesus' mission? It was to the Jews first. And yet, there's something that's being foreshadowed here. He says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying again, Lord, help me. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, here's the third time, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as as you desire. And her daughter 
was healed instantly. So we see a few other added details there in Matthew's account. And essentially, what do we find? We find that this woman is relentless. It's likely that she sees Jesus first, perhaps coming into the region, maybe in the marketplace, maybe before they hit the house, they had to go and get some meat to grill or something. They're hungry. They need something to eat. They go into the marketplace. Tyre and Sidon are known for their souks, for their markets. And she's following them there. She's following. She's pestering him. And in this Gentile area, the place where Jesus is trying to remain hidden, what is she doing? She's declaring the good news. Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus ignores her. She's pestering them. In a sense, here we see playing out in space and time a living, walking, breathing example of more than one of Jesus' teachings and parables. She's an embodiment of his teaching from Matthew 7 to keep on asking, seeking, and knocking. Of course, the disciples don't see that, right? Here she is living out exactly what Jesus taught them to do. And they don't see a woman of faith who's consistently coming, keeping, continuing to ask, continuing to seek, continuing to knock. They just see a bother. And so they ask Jesus to send her away. She is also, in some sense, a picture of the widow woman pursuing a judge for justice in one of Jesus' parables. If you remember the judge who says that he had neither fear for God or man, and yet because this woman would not leave him alone, he'll give her what she wants. And then Jesus adds, as he does so often, what does he add? Those beautiful words. How much more? How much more? In other words, God isn't this wicked and unruly judge that you have to come and pester and pester and pester because He doesn't care about you. Instead, He cares the most for you. If we put Matthew and Mark together, we seem to get a picture of this woman following them to the house, continually asking, seeking, knocking. And even though Jesus has kind of deferred her in a sense, as the disciples come exasperated to Jesus and say, please, can you just send her away? You can almost sense the smirk, the playful smirk on Jesus' face as he watches his disciples' reactions to her. And ultimately what happens? Yes, she came asking, seeking, and knocking. But she goes home rejoicing. Not merely or only because she got what she asked for, but because she met the Lord. And who was she petitioning for? Not herself, but for her daughter. J.C. Ryle picked Up on this, commenting on this passage, he said, Hopeless and desperate as the daughter's case appeared, she had a praying mother. And where there is a praying mother, there is always hope. I love that. 
Moms, keep praying. Dads, keep praying. Even when your children don't want to hear anything about the Lord anymore, keep praying. As parents, the one thing we can always and at all times do for our children is lift them in prayer before the Lord. Not that all their conflicts and problems will be removed and resolved without pain, because we know that the sovereign Lord often works through our pain and suffering to bring us to Himself. But let our prayers for our children be for their eternal blessing and not merely their temporal ones. That they would come to know, honor, love, serve, and obey Jesus with joyful hearts. That they would find salvation in Christ alone, be converted, and find true felicity, which is the love of Christ, in whom all the battles and storms of life may be weathered as we take shelter in Him. Never give up. Never stop praying. Never stop asking, seeking, and knocking on behalf of your children. Pray and keep on praying. Amen? And so here we see what happens. This woman comes to Jesus in the region of Tyre and Sidon, in the land of Zarephath, and we see a reversal of the Elijah story because, in a sense, through this interaction, she is asking Jesus for bread. Literally for crumbs of bread. And Jesus feeds her from the table of the children, foreshadowing that there will not always be this separation. It was important for Jesus to come here. It was important for him to have this interaction so that the disciples and ultimately we could see that the plan was always for the Gentiles to be fed from the children's table as well. The gospel had to go to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. But a time was coming when what was true about this Syrophoenician woman on that day and what was true, Ephesians 2 was true about her on that day, if you remember. Ephesians 2, 11 through 13, she was called the uncircumcision by what was called the circumcision. She was at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. She was a stranger to the covenants of promise. And because of that, she had no hope and was without God in the world. That's what was true about that woman when she woke up that day. But that truth would become a thing of the past. A part of her story, but not its defining moment. Jesus would give her a new identity and she would be what Ephesians goes on to say in verse 13 of chapter 2. Though she was afar off in Christ Jesus, she would be brought near by his blood, by his sacrifice, which he gave in his body on that tree and whereby through that sacrifice he would offer 
to Jew and Gentile bread where he would say take eat this is my body which is broken for you this is not just her story it's our story too isn't it what things make you unclean remember we've moved immediately from this Conflict between the scribes and the Pharisees and Jesus about cleanliness and defilement. And Jesus moves from there directly into unclean territory. And he meets up with this unclean woman. What makes you unclean? It's so much more than our cultural heritage, isn't it? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. Or do you not know... That the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And though that list seems like something we might be able to count ourselves out of if we remember Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount that it's not merely the physical act of the manifestation of some of these sins, but the inward place of the heart. There's not one of us that gets a pass on that list. And then Paul says these beautiful words in verse 11, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11. And such were some of you. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And such were some of you. You see, what defined us before coming to Christ does not have to be the be-all and end-all of our story any more than it was for this Syrophoenician woman. Yes, on that day when she came, what defined her was her cultural heritage of uncircumcision and uncleanliness, of being afar off, of being alienated and separated from the covenants of promise without God and with no hope in the world. But that was not the end of her story. Praise God. And it doesn't have to be the end of ours, but we're getting ahead of ourselves just a bit. Verse 27, Jesus says to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And at just a cursory reading. It seems that if we take Matthew together with Mark, it's like Jesus is just sort of like added insult to injury. First, he doesn't say a word to her. Now he calls her a dog and says, look, the children got to be fed first, lady. But if we look closely, we see this is where Jesus opened the door for the woman. The written word is hard because the written word is 
black and white. It conveys, in most cases, very little, if any, emotion. We don't get to see Jesus' body language when, she, when he says this to her. We don't get to see the look on his face or perhaps the twinkle in his eye. I believe that much of this interaction was there, though she is abundantly blessed in this interaction with Jesus. And of course, it is for her. Yet I believe that the import of this instance was for the disciples to see what was happening with Jesus and this Gentile woman. And here's the beautiful thing. Where's the open door? At least the crack of an open door. The crack of the open door is in the word first. Because first implies a second. First implies continuance. First implies that there's something coming next. And I have to believe, if not with a wink, at least with a twinkle in his eye, Jesus said this to this woman. Almost saying, do you see the crack? Do you see the light? Take it. Run with it. Don't let your hope continue to be deferred. Step out in faith and grab it. And she does. And she says to him, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Now, it's important to know that the word that Mark uses saying that Jesus said this is not the common word for dogs in the Greek. There was another word for dogs that was more commonly used, and it meant those mongrel strays out in the street. And it was the word that Jews were often known to use for referring to Gentiles. And yet, Jesus here in the Greek uses a different word. And the word that he uses is not the word that means mongrels in the street, but rather is a diminutive. Think of your Spanish. Whenever you add ito to the end of a Spanish word, what does that mean? Or ita or ito. It's diminutive. It means little, but it, 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 it implies... Affection, right? So I have had some people that call me Miguelito. Because Miguel is Michael, but Miguelito implies affection. And here Jesus uses the word, not for these mongrels in the street, but he calls them little dogs, which was the word that was used for pets. In fact, it would have almost been strikingly strange that he didn't use the common word that the Jews were so used to using for referring to the Gentiles. And so she sees the crack. And she says, yes, Lord, but even the little dogs... Right? You said little dogs, right? Like the pets, right, Jesus? That's what you said? You didn't say the mongrels in the street. You specifically said the little dogs. 
And you're talking about feeding the children so the little dogs are with the children. And I know because I've seen them, they eat what falls from the table and nobody really chastises them. Yes, Lord, but even the little dogs get to eat the crumbs from the children. So let's ask a question. Have the children been fed? Who are the children representing in the text? Obviously, the Jews. Have they been fed? Signs, wonders, miracles, and even, most recently, what? The feeding of the 5,000 with five loaves of bread and two fish. Have the children been fed? The answer is yes. Maybe she's even heard that. She's heard of him. What has she heard? We don't know. But whatever she's heard was enough to get her to come and keep asking and keep seeking and keep knocking until she got an audience with the king and said, if it's from your table, O master, O king, O Lord, I'll even take the crumbs. Because I know the children have been fed. It was time for some crumbs to fall. It's not right for the children to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. Yes, Lord, but even the children's crumbs fall and the dogs are able to eat. I'll eat crumbs from your table, Lord. This reminds me of Peter's words to Jesus in John chapter 6 when everyone leaves him and Jesus looks at the twelve and he says, are you going to go too? And what does Peter say? We'll keep eating crumbs from your table, Lord. To where will we go? Where else? Who else is going to let us eat the crumbs from the table? Where? Who else is going to feed us the way that you? You alone have the words that lead to eternal life, Peter says. And so verse 29 of Mark chapter 7, Jesus looks at this woman and he says, For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. I love the way Matthew records it. Matthew 15, 28, what does he say? A woman, great is your faith. Jesus is like proud of her. You didn't give up. You kept on asking. You kept on seeing. You kept knocking. You saw the crack in the door. You heard what I implied in saying first. You went after it. And great is your reward. Be it done for you as you desire. Remember Matthew 6.33. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. Now this is a challenging text. And I've had to do some challenging reading this week. Some commentators went as far as saying that this woman taught Jesus a lesson about racism and male chauvinism. And that he's moved by her wit in answering his question. And that's Mark's kind of implication when he says, for this statement you may go your way. That is missing the point entirely. Her wit didn't move Jesus to do something he was not already prepared to do. Her wit did not move Jesus to do something that his father had not already told him to do. And she did not teach Jesus a lesson about racism and male chauvinism. Jesus is using her as an example 
showing that the blessing for the Gentiles that has been held in reserve is about to spill over and eventually that damn wall will break. You can take that however you want it. That wall is going to break. And what has been held in reserve and only come out as crumbs from the table for generation after generation after generation for a people who are afar off, who are alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. They have no people. Strangers to the covenants of promise. There's no one that's come and said, hey, the promise is for you. They're living out in the wilderness, not in the promised land. And yet through Christ, through his blood, God is going to bring all those who are afar off near. I'm just going out on a limb today. I'm saying that probably includes most of us who are gathered here today. Most of us, if not all of us, are Gentiles. We were the people who were far off. We were the ones who were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Strangers to the covenants of promise. Without God and with no hope in the world. But Christ came to save. Yes, the Jews first. But he was not the Savior of the Jews only. Jesus Christ is the Savior of the whole world. And through his blood, you and I, like the Syrophoenician woman in this text, are brought near. And there has never been a time since the crucifixion, the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus Christ that anyone that is called by his name has had to be okay with just eating crumbs because in Christ we are not offered part but whole praise God let's pray Father we thank you for your word today how else could we serve you with a quiet mind except that you yourself would come. And though we weren't even deserving of crumbs, you have not offered crumbs alone, but your whole self for us, for our redemption. And yes, Lord, we were all of the things that we read today.
we have been marked by sexual immorality and idolatry and adultery. Even homosexuality, theft, greed, drunkenness, reviling, and swindling. But that is not who we remain. Because in Christ, we have been washed, sanctified, and justified. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. Would you cause us to glory in your gospel today, in this good news? Forgetting what is behind pressing on toward the upward call and goal in Christ Jesus, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you as we move into a time of communion.